G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. In my primary school and high school, I did well academically. So from the outside, people thought, she's a good student, she's smart, she doesn't have any issues, she's shy. But they didn't realise actually all the angst that was going on inside. From feelings of rejection and abandonment from an early age led to deeper feelings of anxiety and depression. Our guest today is Sharon Garrow, who will share some of her own journey how she navigated through her own mental health and how she now uses some of those painful experiences to help others as a child psychologist. That's Sharon Garrow, our guest today with myself, Brett Ryan, for Focus on the Family, Australia. Well, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you, Brett. It's really good to be here. Well, let's get into it. Tell us a little bit about your childhood because that's where it all starts, that you haven't had the most ideal childhood and that has actually resulted in you suffering from mental health issues? Um, Yeah. Look, I always say to people that I had a pretty dysfunctional childhood. Obviously, when you're growing up in it, you never think it's dysfunctional. It's just what you know. No, you think it's normal, isn't it? It's just what you know. Um, So, my parents separated when I was six. But what happened before that, I remember there was a lot of chewing and froing. And so, my dad would go away for a while and then come back and then go away again. I was actually really close to my dad. So, that was really upsetting to me at the time. So, there was myself and I've got twin brothers who are three years younger than me. Um, And I guess just one of the earliest memories and one of the things that just stick with me was um, one occasion when I was seven years old and my mum and dad were sort of back together for a little while and um, my dad wanted to go out. And so I really wanted to go with my dad and he kept saying to me, no, you can't come. Then he took my twin brothers with him, but he refused to take me. And I remember just feeling so sad about that, that he didn't want me with him. Um, That that feeling of rejection. Yeah. And look, I do think that was one of the significant things um, that happened, you know, in a little girl's mind, just feeling like your dad doesn't want you Mm. with him. What I found out later was because he was actually going to visit somebody that he shouldn't have been visiting. Ah. Um, And, you know, we've talked about that and everything. And so, you know, Dad and I are really close now. Um, But that was one of the times that I guess that first little hook of going, you're not important. Mm. Um, So that was one thing. And then um, my brothers and I just had from that time from when I was seven, pretty much up until I was in year six, I think we lived in about 11 different houses, moving all the time. Um, So disruptive. Yeah, lived with my mum for a little while. And then my mum has her own mental health issues of depression. And so she found it difficult to look after myself and my brothers. So we then went with my dad and lived with my stepmom, moving houses a lot. Um, We spent a three-year period in a children's home in Sydney. 
Right. Yeah, so now in hindsight, I know my dad was doing the best that he could as a single father, Mm. um, but he had a lot of pressure on him to work and to support us. And so he wasn't at home a lot of the time. So even from the age of 10, we'd be at home by ourselves. And I remember one incident in particular, we lived in a townhouse and I mean, I don't know, Brett, but do you know any 10-year-old girls that off their own back just like to clean the house for fun? Uh, Not many, but obviously you did. I did. I don't know why. But anyway, I liked it. So there I am, 10 years old, and I'm on the second level of this townhouse, and I've climbed out my brother's window onto a ledge that was maybe 30 centimetres wide, and I'm cleaning the windows. As you do. As you do. And then I'm thinking, oh, there's all these mozzies on my legs, so I'm just swiping them away. And then I look down, and I'm surrounded by wasps because there was a wasp nest under the thing. (laughs) And I just flew through that window, and that was really hard because actually we were home by ourselves and Mm. we didn't even really know the neighbours or anything and I was screaming because as it turned out I'm allergic to wasps so my brothers had to go next door and bang on the door and get the lady next Mm. door to come and help me Um, so there's just things like that kind of now look back and go (laughs) that's really strange but that's your life and probably the disruptions of going to different schools in that time mm. certainly didn't give you that security. Home life wasn't very mm-hmm. secure. Mm. It wasn't as safe as it mm. could be. Mm. How did you go in school? Look, I've always loved learning. So I think this is the thing now in hindsight, knowing that we all have different strengths and weaknesses. One of my strengths was my love of learning. So even though I changed schools multiple times, I continued to get good grades. My two brothers, on the other hand, really suffered a lot because they missed key learning areas. And so they suffered a lot. But the thing that was really difficult for me was that social aspect. And so as early actually as nine, I believe I started showing signs of depression. So at that particular point, I was living just with my mum and my brothers had gone to live with my dad. And I'd go to school and I remember just not wanting to talk to anybody and feeling just so shy. And I was always referred to as shy. So feeling so scared and just always with this, you know, sickness in my stomach. My family always used to sort of go, oh, Sharon's always got a sore stomach. Well, now I know what that sore stomach indicated, great anxiety. So I'd go to school, I'd come home. Because our body really mimics what's happening in our mind and our heart and our soul and that physiological reactions as that, you know, pain in the stomach Mm. indicated that Mm. you were dealing with anxiety. Mm. Well, that's the thing, actually. You know, this is what I really try and help people understand now that so often we're told to just ignore those things and push on anyway, you know, whether it's the old soldier on with codrill kind of mentality (laughs) or sometimes in the church it's to say, well, don't give in to your feelings and don't let them control you. And by no means am I saying they should control you, but they do give you information. Yeah. And now I know actually that that sore stomach, yeah, was a sign of anxiety. But even more than that, it's a sign that you're in fight or flight in a stress response all the time. Yeah. Because when that happens, your digestion stops working. And so that's why, yeah, I had a sore stomach all the time. And now as an adult, I have so many intolerances and problems. But anyway, so back to when I was nine, though, all I knew is that I just felt really lonely and I was really scared and just felt very alone and so I'd go to school and then I'd come home and I'd just go straight to bed and um, my mum would come and bring me my dinner in bed and I had a TV in my room I guess that was lucky and um, and I'd watch TV and then I'd wake up the next morning and start again I was Mm. just really really reserved and 
isolated. So that was for a little while and I think um, maybe for about 10 months that went on before I actually instigated and said, can I go and live with my brothers? Because even just being separated from them was a really huge thing. So, yeah, so schooling in my primary school and high school, I did well academically. So from the outside, people thought she's- You're being successful. Yeah, she's a good student. She's smart. She doesn't have any issues. She's shy. Right. Um, but they didn't realise actually all the angst that was going on inside. And so, yeah, in primary school, there was a lot of moving around, having to make new friends, just that constant being in fight or flight all the time. And then in high school, I was in one high school for the whole time. But looking back, I just know that every time I had to face getting up and getting on that school bus and going to school, again, I was in a a stress response. I was holding my breath. I was looking out for threats. I was scared I was going to look like an idiot or do something stupid and all those sorts of things. And these days that can be called social anxiety and I don't know, maybe I literally had social anxiety, but I do know that a lot of people that I end up seeing even as adolescents just actually going to school. It's a very stressful experience. It can be. It can Mm. be. So let's fast forward a little bit. You obviously did it tough and it was difficult for you and you were grappling with anxiety and with depression, um, does it mean it that as you grow older, it just went away or did you have to find where you fit into the world? Mm. What did you do? Did you go and study psychology straight away? What was the journey that you had? Yeah, as I think a lot of journeys, it wasn't just from point A to point B. So I got through high school and I do say got through because it was tough. And what I did, and I often laugh, you know, I thought I was pretty clever at the time. One of the things which you would understand if you're really shy, I really detested was public speaking. So whenever there was an oral presentation at school, I found out a way to get out of it. So, you know, I was very good at avoiding things that were difficult that due to my anxiety, I felt like I couldn't cope with. And I thought that was really clever. Mm -hmm. um, And I was quite proud of myself until I had to leave school. And again, my dad just wanted to pull his hair out when I was doing my HSC because I never studied at all. But I ended up getting still a decent ATAR. And so I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. So the first thing that I went to do, just because I thought it would be a good job and my dad was in the field and everything, is I started a degree in economics. And I didn't mind it. But um, after six months, the being in the university, a lot of people around me, and then having to speak to people, the stress got too high, so yeah. I withdrew. Which is a common thing, you know, when, when you've, you're in a fight and flight, the best mm. thing to do is just fly away I to fly. avoid. That's right. So you did the economics, that didn't stick? No, that didn't stick. So then I thought, okay, God, what am I going to do next? It's just a matter of if you can just tell me what you want me to do, you know, what should I be doing? So then the next thing I did was I was interested also in nutrition probably to yeah fix up all my stomach complaints. And so then I re-enrolled for the next year to do nutrition and dietetics. And in the first week, they gave us the semester outline and there were about three or four times we had to present. So I just left. <laughs> so I just left my right. course. And I couldn't get a job. I remember being very frustrated at the time thinking, well, you know, I'm apparently smart, but I couldn't get a job. Um, I couldn't even fill up my car with petrol without my brothers being with me. I was right. that shy. So then third go, I thought I'd really love to be a primary school teacher. 
and help kids. And so I enrolled in primary school teaching. And that one was actually at a college called Avondale College, which was a really nice college mm-hmm. in central coast of New South Wales. And it's much more kind of like the American style where there's campuses and things like that. And so I was there for a year and I got through the year and I even started doing some presentations, which was fantastic. And I did well, but this is then when my clinical diagnosis really kicked in and I was diagnosed with quite extreme clinical depression. And so I was doing well academically I had started to develop the ability to talk to people and to present, but mental health was still really wobbly. And so I ended up going on some medication to help. But I think because of the years and years of this built up stress Mm. and anxiety, I ended up getting glandular fever as well. And it got me really bad. So I had to withdraw and take six months off because I was pretty much bedridden. Mm. And so during that time, again, I was reflecting on what is it, God, that you really want me to do? That's Sharon Garrow, child psychologist, our guest this week on Focus on the Family, Australia. The word for today is Australia's most widely read daily devotional, designed to give you practical teaching to keep you focused on your relationship with Jesus. Read it online or subscribe to the free printed edition at thewordfortoday.com.au. From feelings of rejection and abandonment from an early age led to deeper feelings of anxiety and depression. Our guest today is Sharon Garrow with myself, Brett Ryan, for Focus on the Family, Australia. You've mentioned God twice now, and uh, you're saying, what does God want me to do? So tell us a little bit about the faith journey, because then I'd like to unpack, because the people who have been listening to this are saying, well... People who are Christians shouldn't have mental health issues. Mm -hmm. And I'd really like to break that myth as Mm -hmm. well. So tell us a little bit about your faith journey. Yeah. Growing up, our family was Catholic. So from the get-go, we'd go to Mass. And I always loved it. And so during my childhood years and early adolescence, I had a relationship with God as much as I knew it from my Catholic tradition. But then it was when I was 15 that where I lived, I started attending a youth group and I became saved. And it's like the blinders came off and, you know, I couldn't get enough of reading the Bible and reading about God and Jesus and knowing that what he desired for me was not what I was experiencing. So that did have the big first question mark for me of why God? Why? Why am I struggling with this depression? I'm trying to hand it over to you. I'm trying to be anxious for nothing, but it's not changing anything. And so that was at 15 and really up until 25, there was a continual up and down and fight with going, God, why won't you take this from me? Like, I trust you. I know that you can. I know you want the best for me. Well, why? And I guess underlying it as well was... My dad, as I said, we're really close now and I love him a lot. But, you know, because he was busy and everything, when we were growing up, he'd often promise things and not deliver. Yeah. And so I kind of felt a bit like in asking God to take this away. Initially, I thought the reason he wasn't was because he didn't really care. Right. And that I wasn't important enough. So those early years, it was about asking why and thinking that 
if I prayed hard enough, if I submitted everything to him, then I'd be healed and I wouldn't have to deal with this so anymore. So in your mind, and maybe it was a very works oriented, if you ticked all the boxes, did mm-hmm. all the right things, mm. then it would go away. But yeah. that is really the myth, isn't yeah. it? That, yeah. that we still can have a strong faith, but for yep. whatever reasons, people do experience mental health issues. Yeah. Yeah, and that's a really, really good way of putting it, Brett, because I think maybe subconsciously there was this underlying belief, if I do the right thing, God, if I'm a good girl, then you'll bless me with better mental health. Mm. And so I always felt like there was, you know, just this one key to my purpose, to where I was meant to go. And I know a lot of people ask, what is God's will for my life? As if, you know, you've got to get it just right, this Mm. one thing. And that's what I thought. And so anyway, right or wrong, that is what led me then into the field of psychology in wanting to help people. Then that was, I'm pleased to say, the first degree that I completed. And I had to do a number of presentations, but I got through it and then ended up getting a few more degrees as well. So I finally got there when I found the thing, I guess, really probably that I was passionate about more than anything else. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about how you apply your faith to your psychology and how those can collide in a way that you can help others, particularly in the setting that you are now in a a school setting. How do you apply faith and psychology together? Because some people Mm. say, well, isn't that that mumbo-jumbo stuff, you know, Mm. up in the thinking Mm. happy thoughts? But you're still dealing with mental health issues Mm. yourself, Mm. but yet now you can apply the same biblical principles to the application of psychology in helping others. Mm. Absolutely. Again, it's been a long journey and I'm continuing to grow in the things I believe that God is showing me and revealing to me. So one thing that I guess I am excited to say is that now after being in this field for 20 years, I can see how actually with the understanding of psychology and science as it is now, so the more positive psychology and the more up-to-date and current science, what it is doing is actually confirming what the Bible Mm -hmm. implores us to do for our own mental health. Well, which is a number of things. So, for example, you know, where the word says to think on things that are praiseworthy, that are of good rapport, there is a reason for that. It's not just, again, the Bible telling us to just think positive, happy thoughts, and if we keep saying it long enough, we'll believe it. It's not obviously pop psychology. The reason is, is because they've shown now through science that when we focus on positive emotions and on positive things in our brain it actually makes more neurons fire and so when we're in the calm rest and digest state so when we're calm thinking of positive things experiencing positive emotions our brain works much better Mm -hmm. and it's better at problem solving at being creative at remembering and because we feel safe it means we're much more likely to actually seek out relationships and connections Mm -hmm. but what happens when we're more problem oriented so when we're noticing all the negative things around us or trying to fix the problems some more deficit model and problem focused is our brain is in the fight or flight state so it's only looking out for how to survive Mm. and therefore it's looking more at going okay what can be a threat to me Um, and so this is why we notice negative things then our body responds because we release adrenaline Mm -hmm. and cortisol and so we get sick and there's this whole downward spiral so that very small exhortation that the Bible gives us for why we should focus on good things and positive things has such a huge 
impact mm. through neuroscience. So what I see now is that psychology, yeah, it is catching up with God's word, but it's also helping us understand why these things work. Is that unfortunately easier said than done? How can you switch someone's brain who's in that negative spiral, mm. that negative mindset, to start thinking about whatever mm. is true, whatever is good, and whatever is a good report? Mm. What yeah. do you do? Well, you know, as the old Pantene ad used to say, it doesn't happen overnight, okay? It's not easy to change behaviour. Yep. and. From growing up, because both of my parents struggled with depression and or anxiety. Um, and, and that it, has a factor as well. The and that has a factor. Predisposition. Yep. But it doesn't have to hold you there. You can't always use that as the, no, the excuse. It's only a part. Yep. It's a part. It's a relevant part. Yeah, I was predisposed to experience those things. And then because of my environment, that wasn't very functional. It wasn't very positive. And also my dad was very stressed. So a lot of what he spoke was quite negative. Yep. And my mum, unfortunately, also was quite negative. So basically growing up, I was a pessimistic person. I was looking out for the things that could go bad and could go wrong, which is why I experienced so much anxiety. But when I started to realise this, and even before positive psychology, but because I really wanted to do what the Bible said, I kept trying to change my thinking. Mm -hmm. And it took quite a while. But eventually, by building in a habit and a practice and choosing to do that, It changed the way that I thought to the point now that people, and I still can't believe it, but people will say I'm one of the happiest people they've met. I'll get called a Pollyanna. People will often (laughs) go- In a positive way. Yeah, in a positive way. I'll get called, um, oh, but you're always looking at the positive, you know, and so optimistic. And I think, but you have no idea where I've come from. So the point being is that, no, it's not easy. It takes- a choice, and it actually takes practice and it takes changing a habit. But once again, what we can see now through MRIs and when we look at the brain is that it's that whole thing of those superhighways. The more you use something, the stronger it becomes. So if I'm going to keep choosing to strengthen those highways to think of the positive and gratitude and my blessings, then that's going to be the thing that will happen more easily than looking at the negative. You mentioned before about the fact that You had a faith and, you know, why hasn't God taken this away? I could only imagine that you've studied psychology and then you question your own dealings with your own mental health issues. Mm. You might have gone through that journey of what good can I do? How can I help others? Those doubts. Tell us a little bit about how you navigated that. Yeah. Well, I remember a very significant time when I was in my mid-20s and Here I am still in a very, very shy phase in a little Bible study group. I can't even introduce myself with my name. But I end up being part of this church plant in Sydney. And I was started to become very close to the pastors there. And I remember speaking to them because they saw something in me and they wanted me to start taking on a bit of a leadership role. And I'd say, how can I help anyone when look at me, I'm crying all the time and I can't even talk in front of people. And they just kept saying to me, we can see what's inside of you and we can see who you are. So that was probably the first time I feel like, you know, and I credit them with so much that they saw what was in me, not the way that I was behaving, but they could see. And they- We all need that. We all need people to speak positively and mentors and people Mm. to say, I see this in you. Mm. Because we often see- 
all the negatives. Yeah, and they didn't just see my behaviours. They saw beyond that. They knew mm. where it was coming from. So they actually would give me opportunities. They'd say, you know, we want you to run this Bible study or we want you to do what have you. And a lot of the time I didn't feel that I was capable, but they supported me and helped me. But the other thing actually, I guess, Brett tied in with that is I've got to say they were the hardest people with me as well up until that point either people didn't know how to deal with me I had a lot of people sort of go I don't know how to deal with you because this depression is too bad or I just got a lot of the oh poor you and the pat pat on my back sort of thing which you need for a little bit okay you need to get it out you need for a little bit but you don't need it for a long time and so until these guys came along they would push me and when I'd start to do some of that avoiding behavior of running away from things that are too hard yeah they wouldn't have a bar of it and I would (laughs) no excuse I would get so upset with them don't you understand that I've got anxiety and so anyway so they pushed me and they wouldn't let me run away so when you say that you've got anxiety How do you define yourself Mm. when someone talks about your mental health? Mm. That Mm. does not define you as a person. Well, no, not anymore. And that's probably still an issue that I grapple with. We're all a work in progress. We're all a work in progress. So, you know, and sometimes, yeah, your words that just come out when you're not thinking about it kind of reveal what you really believe. So certainly at that time, I was anxiety. That was who I was, you know, and I pushed back. You don't understand and it's not fair. You don't get me. And the thing is, is they did understand, but they knew as well that that wasn't all I was. Yeah. And so they did expect more from me and it was really difficult. But gradually I started to do things. And, you know, by the time I finished, then I think when I was about 28 was when I moved on from that church. I was running church. I was preaching on Sundays. I was doing so many things. Mm that, you know, wouldn't have ever thought that I could do. And that's because they saw that in me and they also wouldn't let me run away. They weren't trying to protect me, as in they weren't trying to just go poor you because you've had such a hard time and you've got these issues. They knew that. They acknowledged it. It wasn't they said it wasn't real, but they said, you know, come on, we know God's got more for you as well. Yeah. Unfortunately, time has got the better of us and I'd love to have you as a guest again. Um, But in our last few moments... What would you like to say to somebody right now who is either dealing with mental health themselves or they know someone that they love and are caring for who are dealing with this? What words of advice would you give them? I guess to sum it up is one, there is hope. There is hope. And even in positive psychology, there's actually something called hope theory. And what it says is that we develop hope actually by when we believe that we can do something and we have the capacity to do something and that we have the way to do it. So strategies to do it. And I think in summarizing, once again, I wanted God to just take that depression and anxiety away from me. And I thought that was the answer. But now I see that wouldn't have been the answer because if he just took it away from me, I wouldn't have had to have the opportunities I've had to have to grow, to Mm. transform and to change. And it might have been easier, but it wouldn't have brought me to this level of maturity that I am now or all the really amazing things he's opened up for me that I still can't believe that That, I get to do. That verse where all things work together for our good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Absolutely. And we we only see a finite picture. God sees the bigger picture. Sharon, thank you so much for being our guest today. Thank you, Brett. It's been great. Thank you. For some articles written by our guest, Sharon Garrow, or other resources on mental health, go to families.org.au. If you need to talk to someone, we highly recommend 
the Christian Counselors Association of Australia. Their website is ccaa.net.au. I'm Brett Ryan and we look forward to you tuning in again for another edition of Focus on the Family Australia. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.